You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 700. I don't think that screenplay writing is the same as writing. I mean, I think it's a blueprint. Robert Altman. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, today on the show, we have writer, director, producer, showrunner, Marshall Herskovitz. Now, Marshall is best known for being the other side of the desk with writing partner Edward Zwick, who, of course, has been on the show before. And after talking to Edward, I, I reached out and I said, I'd love to get Marshall on the show as well to talk about what he has done as a writer, as a producer, and a screenwriter, and see what his process is, not only working with Ed, but also working by himself and as a director in his journey through the business. Now, Marshall has co-written projects like The Last Samurai, Love and Other Drugs, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, The Great Wall. American Assassin, and he was involved with creating the 80s classic series 30-something, and more recently, Nashville. He is also a very accomplished producer and has produced projects like the Oscar-winning film Traffic, Defiance, Legends of the Fall, and many, many more. Marshall was truly a wealth of information. It was like kind of going to a masterclass on screenwriting and on the business itself, how to navigate the business over the years, which he has been able to do in great, great form. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Marshall Herskovitz. I'd like to welcome to the show, Marshall Herskovitz. How are you doing, Marshall? I am well. How are you? I'm going well, my friend. Thank you so much for doing the show. I'm, I'm a fan of of. of, of many, many of your films, including the films not you just written and produced, but directed as well. Uh, and we'll get into that in the future. But uh, I, I heard nothing but good things from you from Ed, uh, who was on the show as well, uh, Ed, Edward uh, Zawick. And, uh, and I said, well, I got to get Marshall on the show too. I can't just talk to Ed. I want to talk to Marshall as well. So uh, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to do it. Just know if I say anything that Ed said, yes. he stole it from me. So. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. 
So before we get started, um, Marshall, how did you get into business? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I went to Brandeis back in the early 70s, which dates me uh, severely. <laughs> and uh, I majored in English. In fact, I majored in Old English. I was very interested in medieval England. Um, I was a Tolkien freak nice. and just loved sort of Beowulf and that whole kind of, mm. you know, early medieval epic poetry sort of thing. And at the same time, at that moment, for some reason, I can't explain there was a huge interest in old movies. Like when I, you know, living in Boston, there were two different revival movie theaters in Cambridge. And then on campus, one night a week, there was an old movie shown. So basically, I was watching three old movies a week. Mm-hmm. And when I look back on it, I realized that the real education I got in college was in movies. I just didn't know it at the time. And I fell in love with movies. I fell in love with classic movies. And by the time I was a senior in college, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And and the odd thing is, all I wanted to do was make medieval epics. That's That was my goal. Go to Hollywood and make medieval epics. And here I am, 40 years later, and I haven't made one. But, uh, you know, there's still hope. At any rate, that is what propelled me into the film business. I, I graduated. I made a short film, which was not a medieval epic. It was a very intimate, you know, drama. Mm-hmm. And I, I came out to Hollywood thinking that that would be my ticket to fame and, and success. And I literally could not get one person to even look at it. It was it was the most disheartening. And in those days, all you had was the yellow pages. I went through the mm-hmm. yellow pages for all production companies and called every single one in Los Angeles and no one would look at it. So after about six months of floundering, I heard about this amazing film school called American Film Institute. And I thought, well, Maybe I should do that instead. And so that's that's where I went. That's where I met Ed on the first day. And and really, that gave me my start. Really? And so you guys are just just, you know, school school chums who got together yeah. and then and just yes. stuck together for the last 40 years working on projects yeah. together. That's amazing. That's right. That's right. We're the longest living partnership in Hollywood right now. Really? That, that's actually yeah. saying a lot, actually. <laughs> it actually is. I mean, um, it's something I'm very proud of, and, and I know he is, too. And we have worked independently all mm-hmm. along, but nevertheless, our, our preference is to do things together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I had a similar education when I, but I didn't, I, I had a video store. I worked at a video store for five oh, years. Oh, wow. Oh, so wow. I, I, I did the yeah. same thing. I watched three movies yeah. a night, you know, I was yeah. in high school, so there's nothing else to do homework. <laughs> so I would just, <laughs> I would just take home movies and just watch and watch. And I got such an education. And that was before I even wanted to become a director. At the end, I was like, I guess, I guess I kind of want to be a director, kind of similar to yeah. you. So you yeah. wanted to make Excalibur, but never did. Is what you're saying? That's correct. Yes, yes. <laughs> but there's still hope. There's still hope. I, I finally, after 30 years, got to write a screenplay of the story of 1066, the Norman conquest of England, which was mm-hmm. something I had desperately wanted to do. And you know, I still have hope that we'll make that as a movie. But you know, it's not exactly a a moment now in the history of the film business when you can make big films like that. So. We'll see. I mean, you put a cape on the main character. I think you have a better shot. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the world. Come up, you know, which superpowers could these various people have? It's no. Is that is that a, is that a serious conversation? Did someone actually have a conversation with you about that? Not about that, but about something as ridiculous. Um, uh, oh, something. God. 
I, I don't even want to go into it. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, it just um, it, it, it was a thing about Vietnam and, and someone suggested that maybe that if they had different superpowers, people might be more willing to look at a story about the Vietnam War. It's, it was it, upsetting. It so. was kind of, it's kind of like uh, when when they went in and pitched James Cameron a Titanic 2, you know. <laughs> Jack's back. Like <laughs> at a certain point, you just got to go, go. It's enough. There you go. It's, it's enough. Yeah. Now yeah. I have, I have to ask, I was looking through your filmography and I have to ask, what was yes. it like work writing for chips? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm a seventies kid. So you had I had to go right there. I went straight to, I went straight to chips because <laughs> I had, to, by the way, I had the pleasure of directing Eric Estrada on some commercials years ago uh-huh. and the uh-huh. stories Oh my God, the stories he told about what happened in the 70s. People just don't understand what the 70s were like. I, I understand. By the uh, way, I never went near the set. So right. I have no stories to tell about the production of it. All I can say is that that was the low point of my career. I was When I got out of film school, right. I spent about three or four years trying to be a freelance writer in episodic television, which is, uh, by the way, it doesn't really exist anymore that you don't really have people to make a career as freelance writers in television mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and at one point chips was the only job I could get. And I read one of their scripts and it was like, it was written in another language. I, I just had no idea how to do this thing. There was no connection there, there, it, one scene went to the next. There, the dialogue didn't make sense. I, I literally was completely lost. Right. And I came up with a, with a sweet idea, actually. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. About an old Native American who thought his grandson was uh, losing, you know, was not knowing enough about the old ways. So he was raising his grandson in Griffith Park away from people, you know, hidden away. Nice. And, and they bought it. They liked that. And it was Michael Ansara who played him, of course, because in those days, Michael Ansara played Native Americans. Um, mm. And, and um, so it, it didn't turn out so bad. But for me, it was a very humiliating experience because I had no idea... I, I just it was not the type of thing I knew how to write. And in fact, that was part of what catalyzed, I think, the most one of the most important moments in my career, which was a decision I made after three or four years of doing that, that I just was going to stop. In other words, I sat down and wrote a screenplay as a spec thing. Uh, Ed and I wrote out the worked the story together together, and then I wrote the screenplay. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, either this is gonna work or I'm leaving the business because I just cannot go on doing what I feel to be a bad job doing other people's voices, meaning the voices of shows, uh, you know, and and um and so that willingness, I think, to take that chance and to say, I'm either going to make it on my terms or I'm going to walk away, was what turned everything around. And, and the interesting mm. thing is that that screenplay that I wrote had never been made. It was almost made three times, right. but it did change everything for me because people were able to see my voice and I got work from it. And the work I got from it was what then gave me my career. So the willingness to bet on myself 
it was a scary thing at age 26 or 27, but that was that was what made it happen. I mean, that's pretty enlightened for a 26 or 27-year-old, to, to be honest with you, because God knows I, I was in much worse shape than you were at 26 or 27. I was lost. I was in the darkest pit of my time. That's a whole other yeah. story for another podcast. But um, but uh, you know, most most twenty year olds don't have that kind of reflection or that honestly that kind of bravery to just go. You know, well, I'm going to make it on my end. And people listening, it's a very different industry than it was when you were doing this. Yeah. It was less competition. Not, it wasn't cool to be a screenwriter or a director. It wasn't. Yeah. Nobody even knew what that was. They just knew that movies were made. Yeah. I, I know it's true. I mean, it was hard to break in. It, it, by the way, there were trade-offs because there was much fewer product. You know, there were three television networks in those days <laughs> right. instead of 200. Right. You know, um, it, it's easier to get a job today, but harder to have your own voice today. Um, you know, I think you could have a voice in those days. And, and, and I felt that I had one and it was something that I, that I felt I, I needed to listen to. So, um, you know, look, the, the one thing that has always been true, which is to make it in this business, you have to be driven. You have to mm. be, you, you have to need to do it. I remember when I was still in Boston talking to some person who had been to Hollywood, you know, saying, you know, how do I do this? And, you know, do I have a chance of making it? And this person said to me, basically, if there's anything else you can do, you'll end up doing it. <laughs> if there's nothing else you can do, then maybe you'll have a chance. I don't listen. I don't know if it happened to you, but I've, I mean, I've gone through this. I mean, I've got a lot of shrapnel, as I'm sure as you do um, in this battle of these years working in this business. Um, and there was times I wanted to leave. I like I just I, I can't take it yeah. anymore. I want to quit. It's yeah. I, I'm like, I, I, I and then the, the voice in the back of your head is like, what else are you going to do? What are you going to go out <laughs> getting real job? What else are yeah. you going to like? It's at a certain point, you just like, ah, and yeah. it, 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 did that happen to you multiple times? And, and how did you break through that? Because it's it, still happening. <laughs> it happens. I have two things to say about that. I have two yes. things to say about that. First of all, I had an inherent belief in what they now call the hero's journey before I had any idea of what a hero's journey was. It's so deeply embedded in our culture <laughs> that I believe that everything was a test. And, uh, you know, they're going to throw this shit at you to try to get you to quit. And therefore, you just have to try harder. Why I thought that, I don't know. No one told me that. That was just my belief. And so my belief was, okay, I get it. Oh, now six bad things have happened and I want to leave. Okay, this is the moment when you have to dig down and say, no, I'm not going to leave. I don't know why I believe that. I'm grateful that I did um, because I think it got me through. Um, but the other thing is it took me many years to realize this is something, this is something Ed and I talk about a lot. There's a cycle in this business and probably other businesses, but I think it's more this business because it's so speculative. The cycle goes like this. You are nobody. You have nothing to lose. You you do something bold. You do something original. People notice it. You get attention. You They start to build you up. You start to make money. People start to believe in you. You start to think that you know what you're doing. <laughs> and in thinking that you know what you're doing, you become cautious and and maybe arrogant. And then you make a stupid mistake 
and you come tumbling down and are completely humbled by the business. And in the midst of your despair, you have nothing to lose and you could start being original again. And I could chart five times in our career when that sort of thing has happened, where in some way, you know how they say in Southern California, fire is a natural part of the life cycle of this Mm -hmm. environment and Mm -hmm. that you need to have fires. Well, failure is a natural part of the life cycle of a career. Mm -hmm. You have to have failure. You have to fail at things. That's the only way you learn. That's the only way you you grow and become better. And I think people are so afraid of failure that they become mediocre to avoid it. And the business now allows for that. You know, you know, we always talk about how people fail upwards, which means they're mediocre and they don't make a huge mistake. So they sort of keep sort of moving up. I'm not a believer in that. I'm a believer in you take the chance and and you, and you take what happens. You know, like, I mean, there's a filmmaker out right now who's, you know, uh, taking swings at the bat that I'm so, regardless if you like the movies or not, but someone like Chris Nolan, who oh my God. is yeah. taking yeah. massive swings at the bat. Unbelievable. Yes. Uh, unbelievable yeah. swings at, at bat. And I'm yeah. so glad there's guys like him and Fincher yeah. and these kind of guys um, that just go up there and just take massive because there's yeah. there's you could take creative choices or creative challenges and do things that are original at a lower budget. But when you get up to the 150, 200 million dollars and you do I something know. like Inception or Tenet, I know, I know. that's I know. that's a, that's a writ because imagine if that goes really badly. It's hard. You get put in director it, jail. And that's the thing. <laughs> I, I, I understand. And, and I have enormous respect. And as you say, it's like I couldn't even follow Tenet. You know, I'll, I'll be honest. I couldn't follow it. I want to watch it again. I mm-hmm. want to watch it backwards, would... you know. And, and then, then he makes Dunkirk, which is like sublime. You know what I mean? And, and it doesn't matter because he's an incredible filmmaker who has a vision, who has the – resources the wherewithal and the courage to follow that vision and 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 you're right we we need people like that we need a business that will still support people like that and if there's one big difference between today and 30 40 years ago it's that there were more people in positions of power who were willing to trust filmmakers back then that's mm-hmm. just a fact i mean look we wouldn't have star wars without Alan Ladd. I mean, Alan Ladd took a risk on a filmmaker who made THX 1138, which was a horrible bomb. He's like, hey, you know what? I think let's give him him like 9 million. Sure, you can have the merchandising rights. I'm sure that that, that'll work out fine for everybody. You know, one of the most famous stories in Hollywood, that merchandising story is just amazing. Well, because (laughs) all contracts were rewritten after that. I mean, it was after that. Totally. Every, every, because like, there's no money in lunch boxes and action right. figures. What is that to a right. sci-fi movie? Ah, it's your take right. it, kid. Oh, God. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's absolutely remarkable. I always yeah. talk. I always talk about the um the punch that everybody gets in this t- in this business. No matter how big you are, no matter how accomplished you are, no matter what stage in life you are. Punches yeah. continues to come all the time. And as yes. you get as you get older, you yeah. learn how to duck a bit. Like when you're younger, you learn how to take <laughs> it. You learn how to yeah. take the punch and keep going. Yeah. Like you were saying, like, okay, they yeah. threw six or seven things at me. Screw you. Yeah. I'm still going. That's the yeah. taking of the punches. But some right. people get that first punch and they're out, for, out yeah. of the game. Uh, they, right. They're cold cocked. That's right. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But as you get older, sometimes you could duck, sometimes you can weave, sometimes it could skim off you, and sometimes it just misses you altogether. Um, but that's that's age, that's experience. Well, can I tell you, I don't think Ed and I have ever learned how to duck or weave. <laughs> I think we got one of the worst punches of our career this just this past year in 2020, and we were just destroyed by it, just destroyed. And I'll, I'll even say what it is. We, we thought we were doing a reboot of 30-something yeah. We had a great idea. Uh, it, basically, it wasn't a redo. It was basically saying it's another generation. All of their children are now in their 30s, and it's going to be as much about their children as it is about the original cast members. And we wrote seven scripts, and we thought it was going to go. And we had our, our whole heart and soul in this thing. Mm-hmm. And ABC decided not to do it. And we were just like, <laughs> we were undone. So here we were, you know, there was no ducking. There was no weaving. That was a straight punch right to the face. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the, you know, the thing about the business, if you're a creative person, meaning if you, when I say creative person, we're all creative people. But what I, what I mean is if you make your living by creating things, either as a producer, director, writer, that sort of thing. <laughs> This is going to happen over and over and over again. You have to be willing to endure that kind of of rejection, mm. which is not the same as failure. Failure is once you've made it and people shit on it. You know, rejection is before you get to make it and people don't take it seriously or they don't think it's good enough or they decide they don't want to do it for whatever reason, you know. And and you know, the point is it takes just as much work. We have we put months and months and months of work into that, even though we hadn't shot, you know, anything. And it was it was awful. Um, but that's life. That's that's the that's the job. If you can't handle that, you can't do this job. And that's the thing that I want people listening to understand, because a lot of people think, you know, someone like you and Ed, you know, all all doors are wide open. They just, you know, how much do you need, uh, Marshall? How much do you need, Ed? Because of your track record. I mean, you guys have a remarkable track records individually and as a team. Remarkable track records as writers, producers, and directors. And yet, and I've said this so many times, I look, I always use the example of Spielberg, but I'm going to use you guys as an example. But like Spielberg couldn't get Lincoln, couldn't get Lincoln, you know, finance. He had to go. So Scorsese couldn't get silence finance for 20 years. I know. And they're two, they're two icons. Yeah, they're two icons. It's amazing. And yet. See, them, I don't, them, I go, oh, they should be able to do it. Us, I know it would be impossible. <laughs> right. And, that, you know, and I've said that story to other people like yourself, yeah. and they're like, you know what? I'm not crying for Steve. I'm not crying <laughs> for Marty either. But I understand your point. Um, but there's people at every stage of their career, at every stage, no matter what they've done, Oscars, no Oscars, uh, yeah. big box office hits, non-big office hits, you yeah. still, it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. Constant struggle. Constant. Yes. And, that's, yes. and that's what I want people listening to understand that like there is yeah. no magical place that you'll get to in this career where just no. doors doors will be wide open all the time. It might happen once that's or right. twice. Yeah. After that's a big right. hit. After a big that's hit, right. you're, the, you're the toast of the town. You're the bell of the ball. What would you that's like? Right. And that's when you, you stick yeah. in that, that project that's that you've right. been wanting to get done for the last 20 years, like a right. medieval yeah. Excalibur reboot. There you go. There you go. Correct. 
Yeah. Now, um, when you brought up 30 something, how did you guys, you and Ed come up with that? Cause I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I mean, I wasn't in my thirties then, but I do yeah. remember 30 something was a, it was a monster hit. It was a monster hit for ABC. Um, yeah. when it came it out, how did, hit, yes. how did you guys come up with that whole, that whole thing? Oh, there's a funny story behind it. You know, we, oh my God, you know, um, I'm trying to figure out how far to back this up, but, but essentially because we had done this TV movie called special bulletin, which I can talk about later, which made a big splash in the eighties. It was about nuclear proliferation and nuclear bombs and all of that. It kind of put us on the map and we were offered a television deal at MGM television. Right. And of course, we didn't want to do television. We wanted to do movies. And we, we thought television was, you know, shit. And so we took this deal at MGM Television explicitly for the purpose of the fact that I wanted to put a second story on my little tiny house in Santa Monica. And it would pay me just enough money to do that. And the idea was to try to get out of doing anything they wanted us to do because they were going to pay us a guarantee, but we didn't have to do anything. You know, we were only obliged to try to sell a television series. That's, that's it. Just try to sell a television series. So the moment came where we were going to have the pitch meetings at the networks. And, you know, we had come up with ideas for series and I turned to Ed and, and I said, you know, these are all terrible ideas. What if we sell one of these? It's like, we would have to make this, this is awful. You know, I, and so, and this is not a joke. We sat there and we said, okay, what we need is an idea for a series that has no chance of going, but if it goes, we wouldn't mind doing. So we said, now what would that look like? And I sat there and I thought, well, you know, what's interesting is that on television at this moment, and we're talking about now 1986, there's nothing that represents the baby boom generation except Saturday Night Live and a show called Kate and Alley. Yeah, know? I remember and, Kate and Alley. Yeah. Yeah. And that was it. Everything else had nothing to do with baby boomers. And I said to Ed, you know, look, we know all these people in this moment in their lives. They're having babies. They're messing with their careers. You know, this person's afraid to settle down. And it's very interesting because Ed, who was normally so open to everything, looked at me with this look he gets. You know, we, we have this thing. <laughs> It's like he gets this look that looks like a grimace. And I go, why are you so down on this already? And he goes, I'm not down on it. It's just my face. I'm not making a face. You know, at any rate, he gave me that face. <laughs> and he was I, he was just completely, you know, did, didn't buy this. And in those days, of course, we had this stupid little office at MGM. And, and at one in the afternoon, we could just go home because we didn't have anything we had to do. So we went back to his house and his wife, Liberty, was there. And I tell her this idea I have. Why don't we just talk about people we know? Ed's whole point was, but there are no cops in it. There are no lawyers. There are no doctors. How are you going to sell a television series that doesn't have any of the franchises? And I said, what do we care about that? Their story and and God bless her. Liberty went, oh, my God, I love that idea. And she started just listing all the people she knew and all the dilemmas in her life. And because Ed is Ed and he loves Liberty. Somehow, when she said it, it made sense to him. When I said it, it didn't make sense to him. So <laughs> literally, by the end of that afternoon, we had sketched out the seven characters. You know, by the next day, we had written this sort of manifesto of the series. We went in the day after that to ABC. And of course, who are the executives in the room? 
They're all in their 30s. One is pregnant. They were exactly the demographic for the show. Wow. And we basically sold it in the room to them. And, and you know, it was the whole thing was kind of charmed. And the irony was that we didn't want to do it. We did not want to do it. Um, and, you know, it's sort of, that's when... Ed started quoting that great John Lennon line of, you know, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans because at every step along the way, you know, all right, so we wrote the pilot and people loved the pilot. They said, go make the pilot. And then I directed the pilot, which is the first thing I directed. And they loved the pilot. And then in those days, uh, they had what was called selling season in New York City in May where they would you know, show everything to the advertisers and decide what they were going to pick up. It's what now it's called the, whatever the TF sweeps, you know, the, like sweeps, sweep, yeah. uh, not the sweeps. No, the, the, uh, the, the TCAs, whatever they're called, oh, you got know, it. it's yeah. the upfronts basically. But in those days there were no cell phones. So you were ordered to go to New York and sit in your hotel room for five days and be within range of your telephone in the hotel room, because you might get a call that your show is picked up. So we sat there like idiots for for five, for four days in New York. On the on the fourth day, we get a call from the head of the studio, and that's a whole other story. David Gerber, who was one of the greats, and he yeah. was such a character. Um, every second word was a was a curse word, and he says, and he had this. He, he they love this fucking show. That's great, but you got to change the name. They, they don't thirty something make no sense, but you got to change the name. They want to use grownups. And we go, grownups, that's a terrible idea. He goes, well, they don't know if they can get it because Jules Swiper owns it, but they want to use grownups. And we go, well, we hate the idea. We don't want to use grownups. We want it to be 30-something. And so he hangs up. Okay, so we thought it was over, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then, of course, the next day at noon, he calls and he goes, they're picking up the show. So you're so, actively trying to sabotage. Sabotage. The show. <laughs> we're trying to, and, and not only that, I'll go further. We hang up the phone and he's like, oh, you guys are amazing. They're like, you could hear cheering behind that they picked up the show. We hang up the phone and we look at each other. And the thing is, Ed and I have this shorthand with each other. We don't speak very often, you know, in sometimes in these situations. We just looked at each other and we just, you know, shook our heads and went for a walk up Madison Avenue for about an hour, thinking that our lives had just been completely derailed. And now we were doing a television series instead of being movie makers. And, and, and in those and, days, remember. TV was the great wasteland in those days. Right, I was about to say that. It's not the cool yes. thing. Like, now TV is the no. cool place to be. Yes. No, we were sellouts. It's like, what are we doing with our lives? And, so, and, and I say that in the full knowledge of how stupid we were at that moment. And I delight in our stupidity at that moment. But that's where we were. We, 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 we thought, oh, fuck, we sold a television series. Well, I guess uh, we're going to have to go do it now. Um, and that's the thing. That's the one thing I've, I've, uh, I've heard this from multiple people in the business. Um, yeah. If you want to get rich, you, you work in television. If you want to be an artist, you go to movies. <laughs> because, <laughs> because there's a lot more money to be made. At least there was back you know when this the studio yeah, a lot absolutely. more residual there was much more money to be made in television than yeah, there was absolutely. um in, with syndication and all of that kind of stuff yeah as opposed yeah. to a movie it's just a one yeah. so it's like that's right that's right yeah nowadays unless you're, unless you're one of those few people 
you know, um, uh, who, you know, the few directors who can make $10 million a movie or the actors who can make 20, but they're very rare, very rare. And especially in today's world, I mean, look, the last few movies Ed and I have made, literally, we ended up losing money on them. You know, we made a movie called Woman Walks Ahead. We ended up not only giving up all our fees, but each of us paying twenty five thousand dollars, you know, uh, in in the post process, and so we lost money on that film. We didn't, you know, so that's, you know, basically the movie business now consists of ninety percent indie films where nobody makes money, and ten percent these big studio productions that are two hundred million dollar productions, and that's a very small club that makes those movies. Right. So. It's and, and and you're absolutely right. And I mean, the movies. Some of the movies that you guys got made, like I can, uh, Glory, I can't see Glory getting made in today's world. Um, oh, sure. I, you sure. know, Legends of the Fall. I, I, I mean, yeah. even even yeah. If, if even if you still had Brad Pitt and Anthony Anthony Hopkins in it, it, yeah. it I'd still be a tough sell as a studio movie. It might be more as a a mini major kind of scenario. We have a follow up to Legends of the Fall. I don't mean a sequel. I mean a a. It, a piece that's set in 1905, not the same characters or anything like that, but it has a lot of the feel of Legends of the Fall. We're, we can't get anybody to even consider making that movie because it's just a different world now. That's all. Again, super. If you put a cape on them, I'm just. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just, Hey, I, I'm nobody. I'm just saying it might. It, a lot. I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help Marshall. <laughs> So, uh, so obviously yeah. you and Ed have been, you know, you've, you've obviously been great friends since, since uh, the AFI days. What yeah. is the writing process? Like, what is the process? How do you guys actually do the writing? Like, I always That's love a, to hear. a really good question. Yeah. How, really, I love that. You know, what's funny is that when we started, I did the writing. We would do the stories together and then I would do the writing. And when I was supposed to write the pilot, of 30 something, Mm -hmm. I was seriously blocked. I mean, I was so blocked that after three weeks I had written one act and, you know, and God bless him. He, he came in one day, we were, we had these little offices, like I said, at MGM and he sat down next to me and he just took the keyboard. And from that moment we started writing together. We never said a word about it. We never had. We never discussed what the terms were, how we would do it. We just started doing it, and it was all him. He saved me at that moment. He literally saved me. And I think over the years, what we've worked out is we just hand off. In other words, some period of the time I have the keyboard, some period of the time he has the keyboard. And by the way, this works just as well over Zoom. Actually, we use a thing called GoToMeeting, but it's the same thing. But you can at least look at the document while you're doing it. Or, or in person, and one person is looking at a monitor and the other person has the keyboard. And basically the person with the keyboard is kind of the captain of the ship at that moment. The other person talks and yells and says, no, do this. And, and But the person with the keyboard says, no, I'm doing it this way. You know, unless we scream too much, then, you know, but basically we, we listen to each other. Um, we, you know, it's funny when, when Ed and I started out, he had a very specific set of skills and I had a different set of skills. And over the years, we've learned each other's skills, but he's still better at what he started out at. And I'm still better at what I started out at. And that's part of, I think, what makes us such a good team. And, and that difference is that 
Ed has the greatest story sense of anyone I've ever met in my life. I mean, I used to say, you could drop Ed in any story, and in five minutes, he can tell you where it came from and where it's going. It, you know, his, his ability to, to understand the schema of what has to happen, what happened before, where it has to go, where the other people fit into it is astonishing. And his speed at it, it's like speed chess, watching him work sort of structuring a story. When I met him, he didn't really have much skill at sort of depicting how people actually speak or what happens, you know, between people in a scene. And that was my strength. I hadn't a clue what a story was, no clue at all. But I could write a scene. I could, you know, get into the nuances of how people behave with each other and why sometimes people say what they feel and don't say what they feel, why they sometimes don't talk, and why at other times they can't stop speaking. Um, and so, you know, we quickly learn to respect the other's skill. And so if I'm writing a scene and he would say, why are you doing that back and forth so many times? I would say, just shut up. It's going to work. You know, and then he would see that it would work because it would all go boom, 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 just like that. You know, two people, why? I don't know. Yes, I know. But you said that, da, 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 da. people talking over each other. That was something I understood. Whereas he would say, this scene makes no sense. It doesn't fit into what you're doing. I would learn to understand that he's right when he says that. So, so we each apply our skills as it's going along. Um, but there's a certain level of trust you have to have. I mean, I couldn't do this with anybody else because basically you're like, you're, you're just saying any stupid thing that comes to your mind. And, and what we've come to realize, by the way, and I think this is really important to understand is we've come to understand that if there's a moment where you hesitate because you think your idea is dumb or embarrassing or revealing in some way, that's the moment where the other person has to say, what is that your thing you're thinking right now? What is that thing? Stop right now and tell me what you're thinking right now. Because whatever that thing is, that's going to be great. The thing you fear is going to be bad is going to be the good idea. And so we that's respect great. that in each other. And it's a vulnerability that it's a sort of a mutual vulnerability where you know that the things that are the truest are the hardest to say. And therefore, you're you're not going to want to say them. And by the way, corollary to that is that we both hate writers rooms. I mean, I, you know, I know we are far outside the mainstream, but I think writers rooms are terrible places for just that reason, because the best ideas can't be said in front of eight people. It's too revealing to say it in front of eight people. And so when we do our shows, we don't have writers rooms. I mean, we bring everybody in and we will sort of talk about the season in general. But then when we're working out each episode, we bring that writer in and we 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 we, we work out the, the outline for that episode with that writer and let that writer go and write it. And that works out much more efficiently and, and with a much better product, we feel, for that very reason, because people then are less afraid to say what they're really thinking. Now, you, you're talking a little bit about fear um, and, and breaking kind of, because there's, look, this whole town is run by fear. Let's just be honest. I mean, every, every, what do you mean? the entire town is run by fear. This entire industry is run by fear. Uh, and it's getting worse and worse and worse as the years have gone by. Even in my short tenure in this yeah. business, I've seen yeah, it change. Because corporate America is run by fear. And now the movie business is corporate America. Yes. Ex exactly. So yeah. 
you always so did you ever write alone before ed or did you guys just start and just that's no that's always been i wrote that. alone i but we both wrote alone i wrote okay. a, a bunch of things alone before ed yes okay okay yeah. so my question to you yeah. is when you decided to say to yourself i want to be a screenwriter we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. And you sat down and and you saw a blank page because I'm assuming there wasn't a screen at that point. It might have been more likely might have been a page or a screen and up to you. No, it was a page. It was a page. So when you looked at that blank page. Yeah. What did you say to yourself to break through the fear of actually starting to write? Because it is the most terrifying thing for a writer to see a, a blinking cursor or a blank white page. It is a terrifying place to start. It's the most terrifying thing. It's the thing. And by the way, I would say it did me in for 20 years. I mean, I think why was I blocked when I was writing 30 something? Because I of that fear you're talking about. I, I just I couldn't break through that fear. I think, look, I'm a I'm a big proponent of psychotherapy. And mm-hmm. I think psychotherapy in particular, when it comes to work, when it comes to the creative process, is incredibly valuable because each of us has a voice inside our heads that is self-loathing. The thing you just wrote is a piece of shit. And, and it instantly goes into, we'll tell you exactly humiliated you will be when people read that horrible thing you just wrote. And it's paralyzing. That kind mm-hmm. of fear is paralyzing. That's shame. It's really shame is what we're talking about. Writing is so filled with shame because you are exposing yourself. Yeah. And you're exposing yourself to the worst kind of criticism, shaming criticism. How could you have thought that? How could you write that? You bore me. You know, you're uninteresting. You're bad. All of those things. So you have to develop the, the ability in yourself, the compassion in yourself to say, I'm going to write this anyway, even though I might be shamed. In other words, it's about letting the shame wash over you and realize you survive on the other side. Now, Ed Zwick, who is less afflicted by shame than I am, although he certainly is afflicted by it for sure, but he's, I think, more able to cut through that. His advice is write it bad. In other words, go right for the shame. Just write it bad. And because it won't be that bad anyway. But the point is, accept that it's going to be bad and write it anyway, because you can always rewrite. Rewriting is much easier than writing. And I think once I learned that, once I learned I could try a scene, and if it's bad, it's going to take me 30 minutes to rewrite it anyway. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. I, I, it was very freeing. And, and so it's much easier for me to write now than it was 30 years ago, because I was so consumed with shame and fear of shame at that time. So I feel for every writer, this is our lot in life, is to, is to face that shame every single day. But it's to understand that it's shame. That's what you're afraid of, is shame. The, the, I, I've, I've said this on other episodes about this, and it's something that I've, I mean, I think all creatives go through it, but I think we, we, we go through it a little bit more as filmmakers and screenwriters, is the ego is a very dangerous dangerous thing uh inside of ourselves and that that voice that you're talking about i always use the analogy is if you go out and you have a big meal and and it's you're stuffed and then the dessert tray comes that voice in the back of your head goes go ahead have the cheesecake you'll just work out tomorrow 
It'll be yeah. fine. Then right. you get the cheesecake. And then later that evening when you're at home and you're undressing in front of the mirror, that same voice goes, you fat pig. How could you have eaten that damn cheesecake? <laughs> and that is and that is the voice. It's a similar voice yeah. to the shame voice that you're yeah, talking exactly. about. Exactly. It, you, that voice is the one that got you to write. But then the other one, but it's also going to shame yeah. you. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing that we have to deal with <laughs> as human beings. I know, as human beings. <laughs> and by the way, I see it as two different voices. In other okay. words, I see we all have parts and that's what i believe we all have parts and there's one part that's a shaming part mm -hmm. and there's another part that has the appetite and the desire and wants to be a big deal or be creative or be famous sure. or be rich or any number of things we have different parts you know and the problem is at any given moment one part is ascendant and the other part is pushed down so yes you look at that cheesecake and the part that says, oh, I can do this, takes over. And then the next morning, the shamer says, you idiot, why did you do that? You know, and and it's learning how to live with them and and sort of figure out some middle ground between all these voices. And, and also, I believe very strongly at this point in my life in the idea of compassion for yourself. I think that's yes. the thing I did not have for many, many, many years. I had no compassion for myself. And I. You know, I think most people would have described me as a very compassionate person toward other people. Um, it was something that was very important to me. I had no compassion for myself. And that was very hard won and hard fought. And it's changed my life to be at a point where I do have some compassion for, you know, why I became that way, why I'm so susceptible to shame. And here's the problem. People don't go to Hollywood and go into this business if, if they're all right up here <laughs> i've said that a thousand times you know I mean? <laughs> i've said that a thousand times some hole to fill you know you've got some <laughs> deficit that you're trying to get over from your childhood if you're out here trying to do this instead of going into the family business in pittsburgh or or becoming you know what i mean honestly there there we were propelled by by darkness you know in many ways to do this and that but that's a part of our makeup that that we're damaged in some way i believe that and and i have a lot of compassion for that in other people and in myself and as you know I, like the percentage of damaged people in the film business must be higher than than other uh oh per capita other industries per, per capita yeah, per capita. <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean basically you're surrounded by crazy people of one kind or another i mean this is one of the few this is one of the few industries that rewards you if you're bipolar rewards you if you have add you know, rewards for things that would normally harm you in, in, in other businesses. So, you know, look, we, we are that thing about they tilted the country and all the nuts and bolts, all the nuts went to California. There's some truth to that, you know, because because there was an ache that brought us out here to try mm -hmm. to achieve something. And you, and you have to understand that that ache, that's never, you're never going to find a source of that in success. You're going to find a source of that in healing yourself. Basically. Yeah. And I, and I would agree with you. And I think that's something that a lot of writers go through is that, that self-compassion. And I, I mean, in my early years and even into my mid to late thirties, I was brutal to myself, brutal. Yep. I just would just pound myself and be so hard and literally just tear myself apart where I was yep. more compassionate to people outside of me. And it yep. took my wife to yep. point it out to me. She's just like, you've got to stop doing, you can't beat yourself yep. up about this. So finally I, 
I finally get into the place where I'm like, I gotta, I gotta give myself a, a bit of a break, man. Cause it's, I'm only hurting my, you're only hurting yourself. You're hurting, hurting your chances. It only makes it worse. It only makes it worse. And it's tough enough. Yeah. And it's tough enough. Yeah. yeah. It's really. <laughs> now you, you have gone through a lot of ups. You've got, you've gone through a lot of ups and downs in this business. You've been at the highest of highs yeah. and I'm sure you've been at the lowest of lows. How do you yeah. handle, how does the, the, the psyche, the ego, handle you know being at you know the oscars um you know with a project or and then having 30 something your new 30 something completely just get punched <laughs> in the face how do you deal with yeah. that at, at different stages of your life what's your advice for that it's it's along the lines of what we've been talking about which is there was a wonderful book 20 years ago called iron john by robert Bly about mm -hmm. what it is to be a man um and a lot of people made fun of that book because there were all these men's group that were spawned from it, which were kind of silly. But the book itself is filled with incredible wisdom. And that book helped me understand the idea that, you know, that that failure is part of the life cycle and that no man can really avoid failure uh, forever. And uh, that, you know, you have to embrace failure. And so I think understanding that is a big, big help. But it's look, these blows are just, you know, I had a terrible thing happen uh, 13, 14 years ago where I had a startup called Quarter Life that was a, that was a, uh, a, a social network um, and also a show, an online show. Mm -hmm. And the online show was successful for a while, but the, the social network failed because at that time, the whole point of our social network was that Facebook was only open to college students. And we thought, well, what happens when you get out of college, you know? And of course, right when we were developing our website, Facebook just opened itself up to everybody. So our entire financial model went away. Right. And I lost a huge amount of money in this. This was a huge humiliation for me. And, and not just humiliation, it was destructive. And it was horrible. And I had to say, you know what? I took a chance. This was something I believed in. And I took a chance and it didn't work. And I got to move on. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, and so uh, that took a while, but you pick yourself up. If you, if you still have that fire inside to do something, then you have to listen to that and, and say there are more challenges ahead. So that's all you can do. You live with the shame of that and you, you move on. I mean, look, Katzenberg, you know, put out to uh, put out uh, Quibi and yeah. he, he took a yeah. swing. He took a yeah. very billion, multi-billion dollar swing. Big swing. Big and swing. you know what? And he, he was he was he was he was taking a chance and he's like, you know what? I think this is where it's going. I have a pretty decent track record. I think yeah. this is what's going. And on paper, it seemed like a solid investment. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. it didn't go well. But you know what? I, I give him nothing but props for taking the swing. You got to. You bet gotta have people like that if not you know if it wasn't you know for um spacex or elon musk or or ford or edison or jobs or any of these guys who took yeah. those big swings in every aspect we wouldn't be where we are today so totally that's that yeah. bravery and i think as a creative as a screenwriter sometimes you got to take that that swing as well um absolutely and I, it's, I i've lived that way i i i believe in that and i and 
I'm willing to take my lumps because I believe in that because you because you're going to take lumps if that's the way you're going to live. Yeah, no question. Now, yeah. I, I wanted to I wanted to take you to your first uh, your first directorial debut, Jack the Bear with Danny yes. DeVito. I yeah. love that movie. It was it came out during my my window, my window in the video store. My years at the video store came out. So I remember recommending it. I remember the box, the VHS box on the stick. Like, like I tell a lot of my guests. 87 and 94, I'll beat anybody in Trivial Pursuit with movie trivia because that's the time that, that's the time that I saw everything yep. that came out. Um, yep. When you when you did that film, which was a wonderful film, you didn't write it, you directed it, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, correct? It. Yeah, it was written by Steve Zalian. Right, not a bad, he's, he's okay, he's done okay. Uh, <laughs> he's done okay for himself. Um, yeah. What was the biggest lesson you learned directing that film? Because I'm assuming, I know you directed some episodic at that point, but... Yeah. Yeah, you were you were you were at, you were at the game. You were at the at, at yeah. the big at, at the big show. Well, I learned a lot of lessons from directing that film, and most of them were negative lessons. Um, <laughs> it was a very difficult film, very very difficult. Um, there were a lot of problems uh, attendant on that film, and um, and truth be known, in retrospect, I I think I should have withdrawn and not made it. Actually. Mm. Um, and that's a hard thing to say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, without going too deeply into it, here's here's the issue. I think that um, although I think Steve Zellian is one of the greatest writers of our of our industry, mm -hmm. that script has structural problems. When I got to the project by page 60, you did not know what that story was about. And, and I don't think a movie can sustain that. And so I, I wanted to make some serious structural changes in the first half of the movie. And Danny DeVito, um, who at that moment was very ascendant in his career, he was actually prepping Hoffa, which was his going to be his big directorial, uh, yeah, big big directorial project. Um, you know, he had script approval, and Dan and and Danny loved the script as it was. And so they would not allow me to make any changes in the script. And I knew that it didn't work. It was a wonderful script from page to page in the scenes. The dialogue, you know, was wonderful. But structurally, it was very problematic. And, um, and so I remember it's very interesting. Um, Danny and I had an interesting relationship. You know, in, in pre-production, we argued a lot about the script. And uh, and he it, he he's a very smart guy, Danny. Mm. And he he got he saw what my fear was, and he and he went right to it one day. He said to me, he said, "Look, you're the director of this movie, and when we're shooting this movie, you tell me to stand here, I stand here. You tell me to laugh, I laugh. But right now, we're talking about the script, and and that's what's important." And and he understood that I, as a first time director, I had anxiety that I was working with this big star, uh, you know, and he was true to his word. You know, as an actor, he was great to work with and 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 um, cooperative and 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 collaborative. You know, the issues were about the script. And we went ahead and shot the movie. We had a lot of issues in the shooting because the the um, the the schedule was too short. And I knew it and the people in production knew it, but the studio didn't want to spend more money on it because it was a soft kind of movie. And so we went behind schedule as I knew we would. 
mm-hmm. and um, got into big fights about that. But the big problem came in editing. The big problem came in editing because when we put it together, sure enough, the beginning part didn't work as I had told them it would not work because, you know, it just it was it, it, it needed to be sort of condensed into something that you understood where you were going. And so um, they wanted to fire my editor. I said, you're not firing this editor. This is a guy, Steve Rosenblum, who, who we've worked with, both Ed and I have worked with since film school, who I think is the most brilliant editor in Hollywood. And, um, and uh, you know, I put my body in front of him. They actually brought in a second editor in addition to him, who finally gave up saying, I don't know what to do with this. And, you know, we, we spent a year just editing that film. Wow. That's, that's unheard of. That's completely. spent three months editing a film. Right. Three, four months tops editing a film. You know, a year just editing. And finally came up with something. I, I suggested two days of reshoots to help knit some things together. And they gave me the two days of reshoots. And we were able to sort of create, a, you know, sort of knit together the story in such a way that that beginning part worked. Um, and so, you know, it was a difficult, painful process to, you know, as a first movie to have to do battle with the studio head and to do battle with your star and all of that. It was, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And then it came out and of course did no business at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and critics, here's an interesting thing that I, that, that, you know, you know, talking about you, you never see the bullet that hits you. <laughs> you know, we, we knew the problems were in the first half of the movie. Once we got through the first half of the movie, it worked like a top. Okay. And so I'm sitting there with my editor, Steve, in, in a, in, in uh, the first preview and the audience is laughing and they're into it. And we get to halfway through the movie and they're clearly loving the movie. And we're like high-fiving, like we solved this. And then you get to that last part of the movie where it turns dark, right? And you know the 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 the, the neighbor Norman, you know, attacks the boy and 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 all of that. You could feel the energy in the audience change immediately, and we realized, oh my God, people don't like this at all. And what I realized is that when you have a tone change in a movie mm. late in the movie, people don't like it. Doesn't mean it's not good. It means they don't like it. There's a difference. In other words, they thought it was one kind of movie, and then it became a different kind of movie. Now, when you look at the movie, I put in a hundred warnings of what's coming. Some of them, I think, very overt of like, watch out, watch out, watch out. Monsters are real. Monsters are real. But people don't listen to that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They were taken by surprise, and they thought it became a different kind of movie at the end. And that was, you know, critics hated that. And uh, and it did no business. And so, you know, I, look, I look at the movie and to me, it still works as intended. And I think those warnings are there and they work. But for audiences, it didn't work. So, you know, I learned also that you have to think like an audience member. Mm-hmm. You can't just think as a filmmaker. And now when I am writing and when I'm directing and when I'm editing, what I'm doing is I'm the audience. I'm not just the creator. I'm the person, I'm, I'm looking through both sides of the telescope. 
And I'm saying, what is my experience as an audience right now? And is it what I expect? Am I disturbed by it? Am I disturbed in a good way, in a bad way? Am I taken out of the movie? I, I think about that much more um, um, seriously than I did before that process. So I think uh, there were lots of lessons from that movie. So I love I love the the concept of the tone changes because that is something that's a very dangerous thing to do in a in, in a film is to change the yeah. tone because you'll lose your audience. And the 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 only, the one film that always stuck with my head is a Tarantino film, which he wrote but didn't direct, which is called From Dust Till Dawn. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show, which was uh-huh. the first half of the movie is, a, is basically a, a kidnapping heist film. Right. And right. then it, out of nowhere, vampires show up right. <laughs> and right. then the, and then it turns into vampire and the tone shift just jars. So jarring. There's yes. nothing before yeah. that tells right. you, Hey, there's some vampires coming. Not even a poster on the wall. Nothing. It was just nothing. <laughs> so that's something that writers listening really yeah. be careful with that tone change because it can really yes. just throw you off. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's just one of those things. It's the difference between movie reality and real reality In real reality shit happens. You know, all of a sudden you have a car accident and your life just changed. You know? tone, tone, but, shifted. But, tone shifted. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in movie reality, there, there has to be some unity of, of, yeah, not just tone of character of, of a lot of things. So that's right. what's what people expect. Yeah, like you can't have Darth Vader all of a sudden be the nice guy at the end. Like it's that that doesn't. But but I've seen that happen in bad movies with, with yes. characters that just yeah they they weren't the guy they weren't the kind of character that would kick the dog. But then halfway yeah. a, after halfway through the movie they kick the dog. You're like, wait a minute, I that that no no yeah. can't yeah. you can't take me down a road and yeah. then sucker punch me like that. It's yeah. Yes. It, it's very, very tough. Now, uh, another project you were involved in as a producer, uh, which yeah. I would love to if, hear any any stories behind the scenes of how you even got yeah. involved with it was Traffic. I yes. mean, that that is such a, I mean, obviously it's uh, at this point a legendary film. I remember when it came out. Uh, it's yeah. it's Soderbergh who's, you know, brilliant and, and so on. But yeah, it was a risky film. Like the way very. he shot it, the way he constructed the storylines. How did very. how did you get involved with the movie and, and how, how did that go? Well, first of all, that was mostly Ed. I mean, Ed wanted to do a story about the war on drugs. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I think my participation in that was more supportive than than most of the things, especially because, you know, we didn't write it. We didn't direct it. I mean, Ed was going to direct it. But when he found out that Soderbergh was doing something very similar and had the rights to the traffic miniseries, you know, he called Stephen. I, I'm sure Ed told the story that he called Stephen. No, he didn't. He didn't tell us. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's very, very interesting because he was kind of stuck um, and and on on how to make it work. And he called Stephen and said, listen, we don't know each other. I know you're doing this thing. We're doing the same thing. Let's not try to do two things. Let's work together. Uh, would you be open to that? And Soderbergh just said, done. That was it. That was the whole conversation. And, you know, so from that moment on, um, you know, um, he was going to direct it. We were going to produce it. And he kind of, you know, got it together in in, in such a way that the script worked and went and did it. And look, 
we had no interest in telling Soderbergh what to do. I mean, he was, he's amazing, you know, and, and, and we learned a lot from him. Um, he has such a different style from us and, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to see how he worked. And I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened. Um, you know, it's basically three or four different movies. I mean, the, the casts in those right. different stories almost never saw each other. Okay. Right. And yet there's this incredible um, um, consistency of performance throughout the film. And I remember I was doing a panel when the film came out with, with two of the actors. And um, one of the questions was, how did Soder, how does Soderbergh work with the actors? And they each said, Soderbergh never said a word to me. He never gave me any direction. <laughs> he just... And I was so shocked because, you know, I spent a little time on the set, but not enough to really like, you know, first of all, Soderbergh was the operator. Yeah, he's, you know, he's the DP. And, and, yeah. and so, you know, you're he's right there with the actors. You're back with the monitors. I didn't really know if he was talking to them or not, you know. So, but I was shocked that he, they said literally he didn't talk to us. And I, and, and it's funny, Ed has a theory um, that, that, you know, that a lot of directing is osmosis in the sense that your biorhythms as a director get transmitted to the actors. And, you know, and, and so you have to be very careful what your biorhythms are because it's going to affect their performances. And what I realized at that moment was that Soderbergh, if you know him, He's very taciturn. Um, he he's not that expressive as a person, which I think puts a lot of people on edge and makes him seem very serious. He's actually not that serious. He's a very funny guy, but he seems very serious. And but I think actors, when they're around Stephen, they know they can't fuck around. They know they have to show up, and there's something about his. That, that fear of being judged, because he's not judgmental. I'm not saying that. But when somebody is not expressive or reactive, right. you put it in, you put you, you, you out that thing. Right. You know what right. I mean? Right. Right. And so I think having this guy six feet away from you holding the camera and sort of in the scene with you had the same effect on every actor, which brought out sort of their A game, their most grown up self, you know, right. and um it's an amazing effect that that you know in in some alchemical way he got these consistent performances from everyone because of who he is and uh, that was a very interesting lesson for me i mean because the cast was i mean <clears throat> that cast was remarkable and in so many different styles of actor and acting yeah. and, yes. and performance and they were wonderful and they're so oh. every single one of them is so internal and so available when i say internal it means i can see into they're actually not internal they are they are their windows of into their thinking process is so open you know and uh, benicio del toro is is sublime mm. just sublime in the movie it's like just watching the dailies you're going this guy I, I it's like you can't even imagine you can't even call it acting it's something else it's some it's some <laughs> He's in Pos- some possession, possession, some possession, whatever it is, you know, um, and Michael Douglas and all of them and Don Cheadle. They, they were all Catherine in Zeta, some yeah. place. Yes. All of them in some place that was so remarkable. And, you know, 
that's Soderbergh's gift that he creates that that world on the set that allows these actors to to inhabit that place in themselves. Is that the is that the first? I, please remind me because I mean I, I'm I'm not I'm not that keen on Soderbergh's history, but. Was that yeah. the first time was the big hit? Because I know Aaron Brockovich and obviously the Ocean's No, Aaron 11. Brockovich was the same year. <laughs> he was nominated. He's one of the first. He's one of the only directors <clears throat> to be nominated against himself as a director Jesus for an Oscar. Christ. He was up for two Oscars as director that year. And, 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 and Best Picture, too, I think, right? Both. And Best Picture, yes. Yes. And he won Jeez. for Traffic. He won right. director. He won director for Traffic. And I remember telling him... Uh, on the phone, I said, "You just have to beat that asshole, Steve Soderbergh." <laughs> I mean, he's everywhere. This he guy, laughed. this this yeah. guy is everywhere. He, I mean, he laughed. And, and by the way, when we were at the Oscars, um, oh, it's just so terrible. Um, you know, you're we're in the second row, and you can see into the wings at the at, at, in the in the auditorium. Right. And so Michael Douglas comes out to give out Best Picture, and you could see. That first of all, they had three Oscars for Best Picture, and we had three producers. And then, as he you opens the envelope, I can see that the film is one word. I couldn't read it, but I could see it's one word. And so I hit Ed and I whisper, "We won!" And he goes, "And the winner is Gladiator," which was one word and had three Oscars, <laughs> three producers. So, you know, it was it was one of those great horrible moments where we thought we won, but we didn't. But you know, so what? It yeah, was great. it was all no. I mean, it, it, overall, it, you, you guys did okay. <laughs> yeah, we did okay, and that was you know just uh, don't get ahead of yourself, Mark. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, talking about you know guys who swing take swings at the plate. I mean, Jesus yeah. Soderbergh. I mean, he's going out making oh, moves with his iPhone. He's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's it's, amazing. Yeah. Re yeah. absolutely remarkable. So much respect for him. I have yeah. to, I have to ask when you yeah. start writing, do you and Ed start outlining first? Do you start with character first? Do you start with plot first? How do you how do you start that process? It's a good question. What we have learned over the years is not to try to structure anything at first, including the conversation. In other words, so much of what we do when we're starting something is just talk. Talk about how we feel about it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Talk, what, what, is it, what ideas come to mind? How do we see the characters? But not, not in any organized way. We will just go from history to things we've read to what this reminds us of. This is like my Aunt Marcine. This is whatever, you know, that, that, that we just kind of, inhabit that space and that could go on for a week you know or more where you're just kind of living in it and you know it's like somebody once said you know if you are want to make a sculpture of an elephant just cut away everything that doesn't look like an elephant <laughs> yeah you know that in some way the thing exists there and you have to just pull it out that in some way that's true it's just harder when it's something like this that's a story, but we still believe that in some way it exists and we have to find it. And that means being open to the most gossamer, 
foggy notions that might be true and be willing to change and follow something down a line. And so it's the willingness to be unguarded and unguided in that beginning part that allows you to really start to have a sense of what the thing is. And then, you know, then we talk about the characters a lot. And I think we get to structure at the, at, at, that's the last thing, you know, there may be some things we know we want to happen or we know we want the person to be this kind of person. And so that's going to dictate certain things are going to happen. But, but to actually structure the story, that's the last piece of the puzzle for us before we start writing. Now, there was a, a movie you did that was in your filmography that kind of like one thing, like that old song, like something in this thing doesn't belong, uh, which was yeah. Jack Jack Reacher, which is, uh, I think, the only yeah. sequel you ever did, right? Correct. As far, yes. And, yeah. and, and it's, yeah. you know, it's a... It's a you know a Tom Cruise vehicle. It's an action movie. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of action and a lot of like Last Samurai and other things yeah. that you've done. Right. But this right. was different. How did you guys approach this? And I mean, when I spoke to Ed a little bit about it, he's like, I'd never done it before, so I kind of just wanted to try it and see right. what if I could right. do it. How did right. you guys approach the writing process of that? Well, I think you know, first of all, <laughs> I, I I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this. I I, I tend to not want to talk about anything that pertains to other people, what other people said or did. And so I'm going to be a little bit circumspect just sure. out of respect sure. for those people. Sure. But basically the idea behind that film was to take one of the novels where Reacher is in relationship to someone, because usually he's not that much in relationship because they wanted to humanize him a little bit. And so they picked that novel. And so our mandate was to, and I think why they used us was because they wanted the relationships. They wanted that sense of connection between him and the woman and the girl. <laughs> and um, that's what we wrote. And that's what Ed shot. And they loved it. And uh, I remember Tom uh, who we love working with, by the way, we've done two movies with Tom and he's, he's a great guy to work with. He's, uh, he's, that's a whole other subject. No, I, I've, I, I've, I, I mean, I've heard, I'm, 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 ha I'm happy to get into, but yeah. he is, he's, you know, um, uh, who was it who said Tom shows up on the set each day and basically says, how can I make your dreams come true? I mean, that's how he looks at movies. He's full of gratitude and wants them to be great. And it's so it's a great experience. So at any rate, we made the film. Tom looked at the film. He turned to Ed and he said, this fucking film made me cry. None of my films make me cry. You know, thank you. Then we test the film. And women love it, and young men go, ah, it's too soft. <laughs> In other words, the idea didn't work for the intended audience of the movie. Now, have I said too much? Maybe, I don't know, but what the hell, it's past history. Um, <laughs> so we, you know, we did some work on it. It didn't take that much. We did some work. We, we knit some things together. We shot a little bit more action. We just kind of toughened it up a little bit. Um, and that's something I believe in. I Look, I believe in the post-production process very strongly, maybe because of my experience with Jack the Bear, but maybe also even from television, that you can surgically change something and mm -hmm. make it into something that works better. And, and we've done that a lot. And so that's what we, that's what we did with that. And, um, 
you know, I think it, it it's it it's you know uh, it found some audience. It just um, it was each of these things. Look to me, it's a miracle a movie ever gets made. And Amen. Any movie is any good. And, Amen. And so I I don't I look at that and I go, okay, I'm proud of it. We you know we did what we were supposed to do, and and then we did what we could do, and a lot of people liked it. So you know. If, if it's not the most popular movie of all time, we can survive, you know. And, so. and, and I've spoken to multiple people who've worked with Tom and they say, I've never heard of a negative word come. Everyone's always like he is the utmost professional. He yeah. shows up. Yeah. He just yeah. is. And can I tell you when we when we did Last Samurai with Tom mm. and we went to New so Zealand. Good. Yeah. After we'd been there a week, there was an article in the local paper saying that everyone on the crew had to sign a affidavit that they would not speak to Tom and they would not look Tom directly in the eye. Mm-hmm. And not only was that not true, but the opposite was true, which is of all the people I've worked with, he's probably the most polite right. to everyone on the crew. If someone says hi to him, he will actually stop and say, hi, how are you? And talk to them. You know, he's incredibly available to people. And I suddenly realized maybe that's never been true. Maybe there's never been an agreement where you're not supposed to look at the star. You know, because we all think that that's like something that that people have. And I thought maybe it doesn't exist because it certainly wasn't true with him. I mean, I'm assuming you don't want to be in an actor's eye line, but that's just being professional. That's different. That's yeah. different. And yeah. that's just a, that's just a matter of, of and in fact, that, that that's just understood on the set. And mm-hmm. and anyone who is in the eye line, we usually tell them to get out because it's just not nice to them. You know, that's, yeah. that's different. It's, it's called being it's called being professional. But yeah, I've, I've yeah. We've heard all the, yeah. uh, you know, I only want green M and M's in my in my trailer. <laughs> and I heard the actual, I actually heard the the origin story of that, which was oh really. The origin story to I, I can't actually say I'll tell you off air uh, because it's, uh, there's it's a little it's a little saucy, um, right. but uh, <laughs> I heard I heard the story of that one. But yeah, you hear all these stories and look, uh, you know, uh, talking to a lot of a lot of uh, people like yourself and and professionals in the business when they work with these big actors, the amount of attention and and uh, you know that gets thrown on someone like a Tom Cruise, a Will Smith, The Rock, any of these giant. Yeah. Yeah. Movie stars, yeah. a yeah. lot of times it sells papers, it, yeah. it, it it's sensationalism, and and a lot of times yeah. they want to tear tear them down. A lot of, of times, they do. It's of just, course they do. It's a weird. And I've seen that with Tom. And by the way, the thing that always hurt so bad for me was that thing about him jumping on the couch. Yeah, on, on I, Oprah's show. It's like that's Tom every day. Right. Tom is the most enthusiastic person I've ever met. It's like. When we did the final battle of Les Samurai, yeah. and I came oh, to the set that day, so good. Yeah. and we have 500 men on each side, and he's in the full Japanese armor, mm-hmm. and we've got seven cameras up on towers, and Tom comes over to me, and he grabs me by the chest, and he screams at me, this is fucking great, this is fucking great, that's Tom. You just love the guy. He's the most enthusiastic person in the world. Why would you make fun of him for jumping on a couch? It's like God they bless him. Have, they, they, they always want to. They always want to tear it down. And and that's the thing. Look, someone like Tom, and then we'll stop talking about Tom because I could talk about Tom forever. I've been a fan of his since since the beginning. Since all the right thing, yeah. all the right moves. There is a charisma that these piece 
these stars have. There's an energy yeah. that they project on the screen. There is a reason yeah. why Tom Cruise has been a movie star for 30 plus years. That's There's right. not That's a right. lot of movie stars yeah. who have been That's movies, right. who are still movie That's stars. Right. Exactly. He's exactly. still yeah. movie star. He's still the biggest yeah. movie star in the world. He yeah. green, he green yeah. lights a picture today, just That's like he right. did in 1990 after he did uh rain man or top gun or any of these things so um there's a reason there's a reason for that um yeah and you gotta gotta kind of respect that about him and look we all have and we all have bad days and and of course when you have a bad day and you're tom cruise it's news when you and i are having a bad day eh. (laughs) nobody hears about it no one cares about it um now i'm going to ask you a few questions i ask all of my guests marshall um what are three screenplays every screenwriter should read we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show oh my gosh that's such a good one um butch cassidy and the sundance kid comes up very often (laughs) yeah um uh, Chinatown for sure. Um, and I would say Annie Hall probably. Oh, so good. Because, God, so good. I, I mean, Annie Hall, it's funny because everyone's talking about this right now. And it's been a, it's been a very particularly difficult experience for me because Woody, first of all, Ed has known Woody since Ed was uh, 22 right. years old. Right. He, 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 was, he worked in you know, Paris and, with him. Yeah. And in relationship with him. And he's not just a hero of ours. You know, creatively, he w- he was such a touchstone for us, um, and and I, you know, it's just been a very painful painful experience. And and the only way I can live with it is to understand that many of the artists that we revere turn out to be monsters. Picasso was a monster. Wagner was a monster. A lot of these people, you know, and you you know, art is art. And I cannot take away the fact that you know of. You know, Annie Hall is probably my second favorite movie of all time, and that's just will continue to be a fact because he packed so much about what it means to be a human being and what it means to be in relationship into that movie. Um, it, it's it's amazing, and you can't take that away from him. So, I mean, how do you? And that's a conversation about being able to um, separate the artist with the art and you know is van you know is um van gogh do i appreciate van gogh differently because the way he lived his life yeah you know i i don't know and and that's a that's a much deeper question and 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 a more controversial conversation to have but at the end of the day you know annie hall is annie hall yeah and it's and it was annie hall for a long, long time, you know, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, Francis Ford Coppola could go out and murder 30 people, but the, but the, but the Godfather, Godfather. but the Godfather and the Godfather two and the apocalypse now and Dracula and all of these classics, it's, it's still the Godfather. Right. By the way, I think I should add a screenplay to that. Yes. Uh, which is, it's a wonderful life. You know, we named our company Bedford Falls after the town and it's a wonderful life because for me, it's far and away the best movie ever made, but it's really the best movie ever made because it's the best screenplay. It, it, because it shows what you can accomplish in storytelling. That this is a man that I think I once counted, I think there are nine different stories in that movie that are then turned around in the period when he comes back and he never existed, where you instantly understand 
what has happened to those people because he didn't have an effect on them. And if you think it's easy to create nine stories and in one second understand the effect this guy's had on people's lives because he didn't exist, it's a remarkable piece of work and also filled with things that Ed and I call gifts to the audience, which is something I think um, I I learned from George Lucas from from Star Wars, you know, that just things to delight you. In other words, when you look at It's a Wonderful Life, the fact that the squirrel crawls up Uncle Billy's shoulder, that they have a crow in the office and and the little bits that they play and 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 that that Annie says at the end, um, I've been saving this money. Uh, for a divorce in case I ever get a husband. It's like there's so many great things in that film <laughs> that are all in the screenplay, you know, and, and um, you know, as somebody said, you can have a shitty movie from a good screenplay, but you can never have a great movie from a bad screenplay. And that that's that's the truth. It's, it all starts with the screenplay. Now, what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? That's simple. I've given this advice a lot. Um, I have a theory about this. I, I, I believe there are thousands of undiscovered great actors. There are hundreds of undiscovered great directors, and there are no undiscovered great writers. Because <laughs> if you can write, you know, people will see it right away. And you're absolutely you, right. And you can get people to read your stuff. You can get assistance. I'm a big believer in assistance. I think, you know, assistants run this town. And if you can get on the phone and get an assistant to read a script, because by the way, every one of those assistants is ambitious and wants to move up. And their capital is finding people, especially like if they work for a producer or they work for an agent, that sort of thing. And the thing is, if you can write, and I'm not saying this isn't this isn't really about talent per se. It's about whether your writing fits with the movie business. If your writing fits with the movie business, people will see it. They will they will recognize it, and there will be an energy coming toward you. And what I usually tell people is that this is very Darwinian, and it's a sad but true fact of life. Be willing to write three spec scripts. If by the third spec script you don't feel that energy coming toward you then you should probably do something else because you're missing something. Um, now, maybe you can learn it from one right. to the next and see yeah. what you did wrong. But if after three you haven't learned it, just it, it's not going to happen because you because because it's electric. When, when people like what you've done, it's electric. That energy that comes toward you from people because there's such a desire for good material. So I just tell people, look, it's the simplest way to break in. You just write. It's not the easiest way. There is no easy way, but it's the simplest way. You don't need money. I have to live, but I mean, you don't need equipment. You don't need to hire people. You don't need people to like you. You just have to write, which is hard enough. It's one of the toughest things any artist could ever do is to write a good solid story and i've said this a million times as well in the show i feel that screenwriting is probably the toughest form of writing maybe next to a haiku that Uh you can that you can do because of the condensed and the the way it works a novel is so much easier and i've written a novel. i've written i've written um you know books and i just Oh my God, when, I, when I've written scripts and I've written books, when I started writing the book, I was like, oh my God, I'm free. I could just write what I, oh, if I just want to write, I don't have to worry about it. And you just go. 
Whereas a screenplay, you're like, what does the mean in this in this description? Is the I do I need the? Can I do a B there? Can I do a two? Like it's it's by the way, brutal. so true, so true. <laughs> we just go through and take out words, right? It's like, why do you need a complete sentence there? You know, what, what, what you know, um, it, yeah. That's why it helps to read the greats because you realize how little they actually have people say. You know. Um, and and also the greats who have people talk over each other and 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 create a, a, a kind of a, a kind of real interaction between people that you can just see on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've seen descriptions by some of those greats like the Shane Blacks, Aaron Sorkins, Tarantino, yeah, those yeah. guys that you look at and they have like descriptions like one word sentences. <laughs> like yes. they just they just because you want the screen you want the reading of the screenplay to feel like you're watching the movie. So if you're going to spend a page describing the scene, you know, that, that's, you don't have a minute of the movie to do that. You're going to see that in one second, you know? So that's a really tricky thing. How do you convey a lot of information in a very short number of words? As so. you said earlier, this is our lot in life. <laughs> this is our lot in life. This is exactly why we get paid right. the big bucks. This is why we get paid the big bucks. If you're able to do that. If you can do it. You if get you can paid. do it. Well, now you get the medium bucks. But medium the bucks, bucks. Medium bucks, no residuals. Uh, <laughs> Medium bucks buyout. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Uh, right. <laughs> now, yeah. what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Oh, boy. Um, well, I'm going to tell you something that I don't usually talk about out loud. Okay. Um, having to do with why I don't direct anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I direct, I'll direct an episode, but I don't direct movies anymore. Um, I suffer from an anxiety disorder. And it took me many years to admit that. It obviously affected my life a great deal. But all I ever wanted to be was a film director. I only became a writer so that I could direct films. Right. Uh, you know, and um, after I made two films, because the second one was Dangerous Beauty, right. which is actually my favorite and something I really love. It's beautiful. Think, it's a beautiful film. I, I love that film. And, and um and it still has a life today. People, even though it didn't do well when it came out, people still watch it. Um, I realized that I paid too high a price directing a movie, that it's just too hard for me mm-hmm. to get up every single day for 75 days uh, and go out there and function for 16, 17, 18 hours a day at your top. Mm-hmm. I'm the kind of person that needs a lot of time to process what's going on. That's how my anxiety, that's how I deal with my anxiety is that I need downtime. Uh, and you don't have that. You're suppressing it constantly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, you know, you basically have to work all that time, be able to just fall into bed, fall asleep immediately, get your six to seven hours of sleep, get up and immediately just perform at your best every single day for however many days of that schedule. And I, it killed me. It just killed me. And I realized it was a very painful realization that here's this thing that I had wanted so much my whole life was to be a director. Mm-hmm. And part of that was ego, let's face it, you know, and part of it was creative that it just made me miserable. You know, it just wasn't worth doing if it made me miserable. And so I said, I'm going to stop. And that was very painful. And and by the way, still is. 
um, because it affected my career, it affected how much money I made, it affected, you know, how people saw me. Um, I think a lot of people didn't understand that it was my choice that I stopped. Right. Um, because the movie didn't do well, so they thought maybe I couldn't get a job after that. Actually, I was offered jobs. It was my choice to stop because it hurt too much. And so, um, you know, I think that was, I think coming to accept that you are who you are, you have your strengths and you have your weaknesses and yeah. they are all connected. You can't have one without the other, you know, and my sensibility, my sensitivity, my ability to see into how people feel is very connected to my anxiety. You know, it's right. all, it's all part of the same thing. So I think, again, it has to do with compassion for yourself that, that I realized I, I just can't keep breaking myself on this rock just to prove something that I don't need to prove for myself, you know. So I've had a very good time since then as a writer and a producer and directing occasionally when it's only a few days, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, an episode or, or something like that. But very painful at the time. I, I First of all, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's something that the audience needs to understand. First of all, to be uh, being honest with yourself and who you are is yeah. self-realization, huge, yeah. huge yeah. thing in our in, yeah. in our business, but as a human being in general. Um, yeah. And the there's always this kind of myth of what a director does. And yeah. after I've talked to so many, so many, um, yeah. like, you know, I mean, I, I feel that I think it, I think it kind of started with with Spielberg, but then I think Tarantino yeah. put fire on that with the, which is called yeah. like the rock and roll director it was like it yeah. was cool and yeah. hip to be a director when yeah like yeah. in the 70s and the 60s and 50s no one knew who made these things really I mean Hitchcock probably but that's it um, but the reality of what it takes to be a director like I stopped directing commercials because I uh -huh. just couldn't it sucked my soul. Like, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to sell a product. This is yeah. not what I do. It paid well. Yeah. Um, but I just said, you know what? I, it's not me. I gotta, I gotta, I'll just pull back. I'll, I'll, I'll go into post-production. I'll open up a post house and I'll produce and I'll do my short films and I'll write and I'll do other things. But it was yeah. a decision that I made for myself, but it was, yeah. it's all about that self-realization. So people who have the dreams, screenwriters listening now, they think mm -hmm. I'm going to write and direct my first. I'm like, listen, yeah. it's, it's a chore. And I've also talked to so many directors on the show that they, they've told me when I go to direct the movie, I gotta, I go into training physical training because yeah. it is yeah. brutal on the body it's brutal it's brutal yeah brutal brutal on the body yes yeah and the, and then mentally and your psyche and and that's be that's best case scenario without a star that's giving you problems without studio executives <laughs> yeah. trying to sneak yeah. in other people trying to un you know cut your knees out underneath you because it's of their agenda there's so many other politics uh, and it's <laughs> and that's one thing i never actually asked you about this is kind of like yeah. a side note yeah. Can you please talk a little bit about the politics of being a director, yeah. politics behind the scenes? Because so many screenwriters, so many filmmakers don't understand that. I mean, an agent told me once when I'm looking for a director, I'm looking for three people. I'm looking for uh, um, an artist, a, yeah. a politician and a business person. He goes, that's what I'm looking and for. And, and, yeah. the, and the greats. Yeah. All the greats yeah. have those three. Yeah. Have those three. Yeah. Yeah. What? A, can you explain just a little bit about your your experience with the politics? You did a little bit with Jack the Bear, but any 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 tips on how to deal with that? Well, I think it's you know uh, every situation is different. And by the way, I think the business has changed a lot. I think that when we came up, it was understood and expected that as a director or a producer, 
you could be very difficult and, and take stands and, right. and, you know, and, and go in the face of studio executives and win. Now, if you do that, that mostly they fire you. So, you know, unless you're Nolan, you know, you don't get to do that anymore. So you have to sort of, you have to be more political today than you were then. Um, but I think nevertheless, <laughs> okay, I, I'll tell you a little story. I don't know if we're getting uh, going over time or not. No, don't worry but, about it. But, we're going um, time. <laughs> Um, there was a wonderful book called Shogun in the 70s yeah. about medieval Diminutive. Japan. Yeah. Okay. And there's a scene in that book where one of the Japanese warlords had captured the English soldiers and he was boiling one of them alive in a big vat. And he was having his people sort of gauge the temperature of the boiling so that the screams of the man would be just the right pitch for him that would be like poetry for him. <laughs> He's brutal. It was, it was very brutal and, and horrible and sadistic and at the same time spiritual in a way, you know, that 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 he would do this. Okay. <laughs> and his name was Yabu. That was the that was the name of that character. And I remember saying to Ed that when you're budgeting a movie and you're in pre-production, the studio will grind you and grind you and grind you down until the pitch of your screams change. <laughs> this is not a joke. I realize this is true. Okay, that they, they uh, either consciously or unconsciously, they depend upon the director to actually protect the movie. Because at first you're going, I'm not going to cut that thing. God, blah, blah, blah. But there's right. a moment when you become desperate and mm -hmm. you feel like they're destroying the movie. That was the moment when they would relent because they were actually depending on you to know what the movie really needed and not. And so when your screams changed, that's when they would say, okay, that's the budget. Now, that was the old days. <laughs> oh, now, they decide beforehand by a mathematical model what the budget's going to be, and they don't care what your screams are, and they won't make the movie. They just won't make it. It's like they'll, you know, they'll just they'll just say forget it if 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 it costs too much you know so it's a very different world now and you have to decide can i make the movie i want to make without help from these people in other words they were your partner in those days they might have been mean about it but they were still your partner they mm -hmm. still wanted a great movie now it's different now it's pretty much mathematical it's like so this algorithm is best yeah. yeah and 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 because we can get our money back and um you don't have that sense of that these were cowboys in the old days who, who would take chances on things they believed in you know you, you don't have that now i mean it's rare you occasionally have it but it's rare i mean can you imagine taxi driver today <laughs> <laughs> i mean exactly. we had to put a superhero yeah. in it and that was joker <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> that's the only way taxi driver would get made in today's world there you go I, I, I heard um, Guillermo del Toro say this once, and I think it's so an amazing analogy for working in Hollywood. He said, yeah. in Hollywood, you're going to eat a shit sandwich. Now, <laughs> you can change the bread. You could put some avocado on it. You could put some a really nice gray poupon. But at the end of the day, you're eating some shit. <laughs> By the way, we we have our own version of that, yeah. um, which we have, which we believe to be absolutely true. It's based on an old sexist joke, mm -hmm. where a man is hitting on a woman at a cocktail party, and he says to her, 
if I paid you a million dollars, would you sleep with me? Mm-hmm. And the woman says, well, actually, if you actually paid me a million dollars, yeah, I probably would sleep with you. And he says, well, if I paid you five dollars, would you sleep with me? And she says, what do you think I am, a prostitute? And he says, well, we've already established what you are. We're just negotiating the price. Okay? It's a horrible sexist joke. It is. It is. But, but, but the point is that applies to filmmaking. Right. Which is, and it's not about money, it's not about sex, it's about quality. That in the end, you're going to compromise the quality of your film. You are Absolutely. going to compromise. It's Absolutely. not going to be as good as you want it to be. And the question is negotiating the price. How high quality can you get before you have to compromise? It's that simple. And each film establishes that sort of going into it, you know, based on how much money you have, how many sets you have, who the actors are, you kind of get like how good that movie can be. And you fight then at every step along the way for the highest price of quality that you can fight for before you give in. But every day you give in, every single day you give in. And and you have to understand that you give in. It's every day that you are just basically losing at the highest level you possibly can. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That, that's unfortunately the truth. But it's if absolutely- you can keep it there, then you'll have a good movie, you know? And, and it's about, and the, and the filmmakers that get those masterpieces done, it's yeah. about the battles that you can wage yes. and win. I mean, Coppola was, yeah. I mean, look what yeah. he had to go through with Godfather. Apocalypse Now, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, yeah. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I mean, Thank God for that documentary so we know what he went through. Oh, oh my, my God. God. What, every, that's yeah. by anyone listening. Prerequisite, you need to watch Hearts of Darkness, the documentary. Oh. Apocalypse Now. Oh. Such. Him on the phone saying, you mean I... <laughs> paid Brando a million dollars of my own money and he's now not going to show up when you see him in his kitchen. Yeah. yeah. You go, Oh my God. It's like, I I never want to do this as long as I live. I never want to be in that position. Or when Martin Sheen punches the the, the mirror out and he's like about to, he's about to, he's drunk and he's about to go after Francis while they're, while they're shooting. It's like, it's insane. And they keep it in the movie. movie. His hands all bloodied out and stuff. Oh yeah. Totally. I mean, it's it, it's it's insane, but it is about yeah. and with writers, it's tougher because you have less power. But That's as right. a writer, right. producer, or writer, producer, director, director, yeah, yeah, it's about and and look, I'll, I'll say this, man, you and Ed have have fought some good fights because you guys have put out some amazing quality work over the years. Some of my favorite films, I mean, Last Samurai, Blood, I mean, Blood Diamond and um, uh, other, uh, just everything that both you guys work together and separately together on. It is, you fight, I mean, look, you can't get Last Samurai to where it was without fighting a couple battles, creative. Oh, we fought, <laughs> we fought many battles, yes. Many, many battles. Listen. I feel very lucky, Ed feels very lucky, because we spent our entire careers making only what we were passionate about. So very amazing. few people get to do that, very few. Mm-hmm. And and we are so grateful about that. And, uh, you know, whether that was a combination of we're, you know, difficult or, 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 or ferocious or, or people liked us or whatever it was, you know, to be given that gift 
to be to make movies and TV shows that you really love and care about and that you're not pushed into making um, is a great gift and 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 always be grateful for that. Marshall, uh, thank you so much for your time and your and your just transparency and your raw, brutal honesty, which is what I, what what I'm all about and what the show is all about. Um, oh, I hope it, I hope it's scared and terrified people in a way that if it's not, if you're scared and terrified and you don't think you should do this, don't. But if this is, but if this is emboldened you to like, you know what? I can take that, I can take that hit and I can keep going forward. Then this is for you. But uh, I'm so glad that you've helped us with that. So thank you so much, Marshall. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Marshall for taking the time and coming by to drop those knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you again so much, Marshall. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 700. If you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.